Hey, thank you, Greg, and good morning. All right. Hey, welcome to Grace Point Church. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here. I'm so glad to have you here, and my uh, happy Father's Day to you as well, also acknowledging some of you. Um, it's a hard day for, for, for some for a variety of reasons, but glad to have you here. Thanks for being here. You found us at the end of a series. We're coming to the closing chapter, and uh, I hope this will be a good closing chapter for you. We want to especially welcome our guests and, and all those uh, who, are, who are just gathered here this morning and listening later online. Um, I want to ask you a question to kick off this, this uh, message this morning. Is how many of you have ever had a um, kind of a visceral reaction or an internal stress rise up when you have been forced to sell something that you didn't totally believe in? Subs on the soccer team, for example. <laughs> Can we raise our hand on that one, okay? You ever have that feeling of like, man, you're, I'm a part of the team and now I have to sell this? And, and here's what happens sometimes, like if, especially if you have a kid's soccer team sub-sale going on, um, sometimes, and this always, bo- always bothered me as a kid, sometimes some kid's parents like, do it for them. You know what I mean? Like They take it to work, and everyone has to sell 5, 10, or 20 subs, and then it, we come back, and I sold like one, and Johnny sold 96. I'm like, what in the world? Like, well, hey, my dad works for whoever, and all of his colleagues bought some, and I'm like, and then he wins the whatever, like the beanie that no one really ever wants when they grow up and, you know, whatever the prize is for the biggest salesman. But have you ever been in that situation where you've been forced to sell something that you really actually aren't sure that either you know how to sell or actually even want to sell? I remember when I was in college looking for money um, in mostly right places, but I, I stumbled across something that maybe some of you have done, and that is um, selling knives Okay, have we done that? Have we seen that? That was advertised. I'm like, I just saw this thing advertised. I'm like, you can make a lot of money going door-to-door selling, I think it was Cutco knives, and evidently they're good knives, but whatever. And I'm like, no. I don't even like to sell subs, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not going to go door-to-door and sell Cutco knives. It's just not going to work. I had this, this reaction to it. And, and still to this day, uh, sometimes we get people at our front door selling knives to us or selling uh, whatever, you know, come, um, we'll, we'll put a new gutter on your house for whatever. You know, people just cold call stuff. I hate that stuff. Like, ah, I hate that. I would so much rather do almost anything else than sell something kind of forced to, be sell, to sell something that I don't really want to sell, especially to someone who may not even want to be hearing that I have to sell this to you. Now, because I grew up in the church, and this may not be your story, but because I grew up in the church, it did not take me long to feel like there is just a small jump between selling subs, selling knives, and then selling your faith as well. That I felt this obligation, you may have felt this as well, that you know what, it doesn't matter if you like selling subs, it doesn't matter if you like selling knives, you do need to sell your faith. You need to communicate your faith to people. You need to evangelize. You need to share the gospel with people around you who need to hear about Jesus. And you may as well have told me, go sell knives door to door. The same reactions I had on that were the same reactions I had around share the gospel, except it was worse. Because now the message was also like, by the way, if they go to hell and you didn't share with them, that's on you. Like, well, I'd rather sell knives, okay? Can we do that? I will back to the knife thing if we need to do that. But I felt both the stress and then also the guilt of not being sure that I knew how to do this and not even sure that I wanted to because I didn't know that you or you or you or whoever I'm talking to even wanted to be hearing from me. I may as well be a Cutco salesman or a selling the subs kind of a guy. And this morning, 
I have the great opportunity to talk to you about this very thing. If you call yourself a Christian, we've come down to this point in this good news series where we've gone from the big picture down to the small. And my focus this morning is trying to help you, if you call yourself a Christian, to consider the, the issue of how do you, not how does the person next to you, or how does your mom, or how does your dad, or how does your sister or your brother, but how do you, how do you share the faith that's inside of you? How do you, if you will, quote-unquote, sell this to somebody else? What does it look like for you to do this? And I found over the years that often we don't have a clue how to do this. Because in our culture in particular, I may as well tell you, here's what I want you to do this week. If you're a Republican, I want you to find a Democrat and make them Republican by the end of the week. If you're a Democrat, I want you to find a Republican and make them Democrat by the end of the week. Number one, we don't talk about politics like that at all. And number two, we don't talk about religion like that at all. And can you imagine the difficulty it would be to move someone from a Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat by the end of the week and to sell your political persuasion? How would you get into that conversation without annoying everybody in your office and everyone in your neighborhood? How do you even do that? Well, religion, if you will, or faith is often seen the exact same way. And so how does someone who's a Christian who has this faith in them, actually, quote-unquote, sell or share or engage with people personally, not just by attending a church, but you. You. How do you engage with the people you go to school with, the people you work with, the people you work for? How do you actually do this? You. And what many of us do is actually not a lot, because we don't know. And we feel the stress and the guilt that I feel when I think about selling Cutco knives door-to-door or selling subs when I really don't want to do that. And so it becomes difficult, and then we have stress and guilt and hope that on Sunday morning, the guy up front doesn't talk about it. And yet, here we are. So I'd like to actually give you something this morning. I'd like to end up giving you a framework to help you think through. If you call yourself a Christian, how in the world do I share what is in me in a way that actually could work and doesn't come off as so offensive as trying to change someone's political persuasion, for example? Now, This message is a little funny, a little bit different, because this is actually part two of a longer message. I want you to consider almost this morning like the application of last week's message. So I'm going to take last week's message quick. I'm going to put it in the microwave and heat it up for a minute so that we remember where we were and then pull it out and move forward. So last week in this series, we we went to the book of Acts, and here's what we found in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, we found that on on that day, after... um, uh, Stephen was martyred, there was a great persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So everybody who just started to follow the movement, all those people who were on the outskirts, they were scattered. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, and Saul, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. There's a systemic deep persecution going on. Last week we talked about that. And here's what happened. For those people who are on the outside of the circle, those who were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, here's what they did. When they were scattered, Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says this, those who had been scattered, this is one word in the Greek, preached the word or evangelized wherever they went. The people who had the most to lose and nothing to gain, who were a part of what looked like a losing system, they preached the word. They didn't hide, they didn't run, they didn't defer, they didn't wait, they they preached the word wherever they went. And I talked last week about two questions at the end of this message. And these were the questions I asked last week. First of all is this, 
do I actually know Jesus? Like, do I know Jesus? I wanted you to have a time to reflect on that. Are you just a part of the circle, the gathering? Because leaders, I said, can create movements, but it's up to followers to help those movements continue through all the crises that come. The early church went through a crisis. So can the people who are on the outskirts, do you know and do you know Jesus? Do you know what kind of launched this movement? So I wanted to give you a moment last week to just think, do I actually know Jesus or do I, am I just around Christians? Those are two different things. Do I know Jesus or is my family Christian? Do I know Jesus or do I just attend a church? Do I know Jesus? And I wanted to give you time to think about that. The second question is this, do I actually want others to know him? <clears throat> do I want others to know him just like I want to go to lunch after church, just like I want to catch up on my Netflix run, just like I want to go on vacation later this week? The things that drive my wants in the week, do I have in my heart somewhere a want that says, I, I want the people that I interact with, I want them to know Jesus. Like, I, I want that. No, I just asked those two. So those were, this was just value stuff last week. What I didn't leave you with was a framework to help you think about how do I do the things that I think I might want to do. And that's what I want to do this morning, give you a little bit of a framework, really kind of seen as the finish of last week's message from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Okay. So with that being said, I want to kind of go to um, a little bit of church history for you briefly, and then I want to jump into some framework. But um, there's a guy named Alan Crider who wrote a book called Ancient Faith for the Church's Future. And what I want you to see quickly before I give you the framework, <clears throat> I want to jump from Acts chapter 8 to the first few hundred years of church history. And here's what Alan um, had to say about that crowd. He said this, in early Christianity, it grew, if you're a business person, this makes sense, this is crazy growth, grew about 40% per decade for nearly 300 years. Think about that in terms of compound interest, in terms of the growth of your company or your organization or your bottom line. A 40% growth per decade for nearly three centuries. Now, in the first 300 years, there was this kind of exponential growth. But I also want you to know this, in early Christianity, in the first 300 years, it was an incredibly hostile environment. There are practically, practically zero missionary names that we know of in the first 300 years of the church. Think about that for a minute. Who were the great speakers? Who were the great orators? Who were the great writers? Who were the great you know, public leaders of the church? The answer is no one. There were none. Because there was no major public church presence. There were no major missionaries that came out of the first 300 years of church history. There were small people here and there, but there are no significant um, movements like this. The church did not grow because there was someone who was like the Apostle Paul. It didn't grow because of that. That wasn't the nature of the growth of the church. In fact, get this. After Nero's persecution in the mid-first century, the churches in the Roman Empire actually closed their worship services to visitors. I want you to think about that for a minute. We have a GPC. We have greeters at the doors. <laughs> After Nero persecuted the church, those greeters turned into bouncers. True, true, true story. They would not let people in the doors unless you could prove that you were baptized and you're part of this congregation. Otherwise, you were a lying informant, and you might come to kill this group of people, truthfully. Because there was... There was lack of a better term, ethnic cleansing. There was group uh, massacres that the government took care of here and there throughout the early Roman Empire. They were standing at the, the door, and yet the church was growing. Officially, in, in Rome, Christianity was considered a superstition, not even a religion. And because of that, it did not enjoy any protection under Roman law. It just was a superstition. Those are weird people. Those are the people who do that thing. They, what, do they worship someone who died and came back to life? He was a cannibal, I think. He ate 
blood and, or ate flesh and drank blood. Just was weird. We didn't understand it, and so it enjoyed no protection under the Roman rule. And yet the church grew. Neighbors discriminated against it, Christians in countless ways, and the church grew. Why? And here's what Crider has to say in his book, and, and I tend to agree. He says this, that people, why did it grow? That people were fascinated by it, drawn to it as a magnet. Because of their concern for the weak and the poor, their integrity in the face of persecution, their economic sharing, their sacrificial love, even for their enemies, and the high quality of their common life together. That ultimately what drove Christianity in that exponential growth was not a great public speaker, was not a great writer, was not a great missionary, but was actually the people, the individuals, for the first several hundred years, who in an incredibly hostile environment, they evangelized, they preached the gospel, they did their thing wherever they went. Now, here's what we see happening in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, there's this constant drumbeat of how people use their homes and their personal spaces to share the gospel and to, to carry on. And here's what um, Tim Keller put this paragraph together, essentially. I'm, I'm grateful to Keller for so many of my thoughts here this morning. But Keller kind of put it this way. I'm summarizing it a little bit. Homes in Acts, in the New Testament church, were used for teaching in Acts 5, for planned presentations of the gospel to friends and neighbors in Acts chapter 10, for prayer meetings in Acts 12, for impromptu evangelistic gatherings in Acts 16, for follow-up sessions with inquirers in Acts 18, for evenings devoted to instruction and prayer, and then for fellowship. We see this happening in the early church, that people use their personal space, their personal home to say, this is my faith, like, I own this, I'm in. And I'm going to use what I have to continue to move the message of the kingdom forward. That's just the way things work. Our homes are used for different things nowadays, and I get that. But I want to push into this space a little bit and ask this question. If I know Jesus and if I want people to know him, how can I take the news of Jesus and share it out and push it out to people around me? And so for the rest of our time, I want to talk about a couple things. I want to talk about three words, but I want to frame them up this way. Um, I don't believe that going door-to-door selling knives is going to be the best way for the majority of people in this room to operate. I don't think going door-to-door and I don't think going person-to-person and trying to change someone from being a Democrat to Republican, for example, is a great way to go. I do think this, that for any major decision that people make, um, take, for example, adoption. Some of you know people who have adopted children. If you make a major decision like that, if you know someone who's walked through that, there's actually a series of many decisions that they make all along the way. Perhaps the first mini-decision is, oh, there are children who need adopted. I had no idea. Let me listen to that. Maybe the next one is, hey, let me have lunch with someone who's actually done that. I just want to pray for them, and I just want to care for them as someone who is supporting an adopted friend. Then maybe the next decision is, huh, I wonder if this would ever be something in my family to consider. And then along the way, that it's a series of mini-decisions. It is rare, it is rare that someone would walk into, take a room like this, that someone would walk into a room like this and go from zero to adoption in 30 minutes. You know, it's, it's rare because it's a big decision. It happens, it happens, but it's rare. The more common reality is moving from big decision, little decision to big decision is a series of many decisions along the way. Moving from outside of faith in Christ to putting your faith in Christ, that's a big decision. Usually, that's a series of many decisions that people make. Because some people are outside of faith in Christ. The reason they are is because, number one, hey, 
The pastor was crazy in the town I grew up in, or my parents used to try that, and then they did this, and now they're, all Christians are hypocrites. Or I don't even believe the Bible is true. Do you use your mind intellectually and understand the struggles that are there? There's reasons why people push away. And the point is simply, if you're going to move someone who's outside of faith into a conversation about faith in Christ, there's this mini-decision process that people go through. My point is this. We have to be relationally connected with people through their decision-making process. I have to be with someone as they move from, yeah, I don't know if I even trust Christians, to maybe, maybe I trust him. Maybe I trust her. Okay, now, now I, I trust you. I still don't believe in your Bible. I mean, seriously, do you think God is actually real? Like, do you think Jesus came down and died and came back to life? Like, I don't think I believe all that, but I trust you. That's a mini decision I've made. From not trusting any Christians to trusting you. Now, maybe you said that and you, your life bears that out. You handle grief that way. Okay, you're telling me this is true. Maybe I'll consider it. And you can see the process of many decisions along the way. So my default is this, that I believe that there's a necessity for us to relate consistently with people who are outside of faith in Christ and that the relational piece is a very important way to think through what we're doing. So with that being said, with that background, I want to offer you three words to consider as a framework for how to think through how to connect with people, and how to share, and how to live out your faith. The first word is this, and these words, again, I give credit to Tim Keller for these words. I like them. I don't want to change them because I think they're solid. Number one, he talks about this word that is very simple, this word called like. Here's what we mean by that, that if you are um, in a world where you do not look like, talk like, are aware of the same issues that other people are dealing with, you are an outsider. You know, this... um, this past Thursday, I had a chance to go to a business mixer in Gap and connect with a variety of different people. And here's what I found, and you may find this too, when you're mixing with people who are brand new, you tend to gravitate toward people who are somewhat like you. Because I'm very uncomfortable with people who are unlike me, and if I feel you know, kind of pulled away. So it took just a couple minutes, I'm into a conversation with someone, he's like, hey, you know what, my dad is a pastor here, and pastor there. So all of a sudden, I'm making a connection with this guy. Some of you were at the uh, Heritage Days weekend this weekend and at the Run Ride Walk event yesterday. That was an interesting mix of people. We had our Amish community and we had our non-Amish community. And here's what you notice, uh, that if you have a group of people to show up for an event, it tends to be that English, by default, hang out with English and Amish hang out with Amish. Why? Because you look like you should belong together, right? That there's a likeness that we share. And so in this opening idea of how do you relate to people, here's what I want to say, that we need to be like the world enough that they say, oh, you are going through that crisis? You are essentially wearing the same things that I'm wearing? You are thinking about the world in the same way? You're dealing with the um, civic issues that I'm dealing with? Your kids are going to those schools? You are engaged in that way that there is a likeness that I have to you, that I see you and you see me, and I can relate to you. Like, one of the things that turns us off and has turned me off to many things is, is this insider language. When we use insider language, it's like, you're not a part of me and I'm not a part of you. You're not like me. I don't know what your words are. I can't connect. But this idea of being like the world around us is where I want to start, that we need to have this likeness to the folks around us, this likeness, enough that people are like, huh, this is someone I want to get to know. Now, here's the problem with being like somebody. If all you are is like somebody, and if all I am is like somebody, then I have nothing unique to offer, right? If I over-adapt, if all I am is like you, 
then why would you come to me for any help or solutions for any of the struggles that you're facing? So while you want to be like people, and while I want to be like people, I also want to be like this. I want to be unlike. And here's the beginning of the challenge. That while I want to be like somebody, and I think that we should be like people in the sense of um, even excellence in the work that we do. Can you imagine for a minute a, a young entrepreneur who's just graduating from high school saying, you know, I would really love to start a business, and whose business do I want to, to emulate? And then they mention your name. Why do they mention your name? Because I want to be like you, because that's a Christian business leader in our community who I want to emulate. I can see that I want to be like them because they set a standard for excellence that's amazing. I want to be like them. You're setting an example we can be like. But you also want to be, here's the challenge, unlike. And, and I want to be unlike in the things that really matter. I don't want to be unlike, I don't want to be unlike in things that easily create legalism. Okay? I want to be unlike in matters of character. I want to be unlike in matters of faith. I want to be unlike in this way. I want to be unlike in matters of, let's say, generosity. But I want to be, if you work for my business or organization, if you work with me, I want you to come to work for this company that I might run and say, you know what, I have never experienced, I've never experienced the kind of generosity that I experience in this company. Why is it here? Because the other business I work for, they don't have this thing. I can't put words to it, but they don't have this thing. And you come to realize, oh, that person, they're a Christian. They're driven by servant leadership business principles. All of a sudden, I'm, my life matters. God matters that servant leadership matters in this company. I was talking to a business leader, Christian business leader this past week. He said they've experienced 10% growth over the last nine years. Or, uh, excuse me, not 10% growth. They've, they, their company has grown um, by about 40% in the last nine years. He said the reason is, he said, I think the reason is, what we, what we do is we're focusing our energies on how in the world can we get to know our employees and build into their lives, understand their story, and move forward. It sounds a lot like um, what Cheryl Backhelder did with Popeye's, this dare-to-serve idea, that I'm going to take my energy, I'm going to serve my employees, figure out how to serve them. What is underneath that? Christian principle of servant leadership. That I would want this to be unlike a business that is not Christian. I would want you and I want me to be unlike people in this way, People have, look at you and say, well, why in the world do you volunteer your time? Who has time to go serve at the children's ministry at Blast at the Together Community Center? Who in the world has time to go on a retreat with senior and junior hires? Who in the world wants to do that, number one? But who in the world has time to do that, number two? The answer is no one has time. They just make the time. But why do you make the time to do that? You're unlike me in that way. Like, I would never do that. I would go to the beach. I would go to whatever. Well, that's different. Tell me about that. We want to be unlike in our areas of sympathy and forgiveness. And let's talk about forgiveness and not being bitter for a minute. If you and, and, and me cannot figure out how to release some past pain and offer nothing new to the world relative to bitterness and anger, come on, give me a break. How can we expect people to be drawn to the gospel of forgiveness? Like We need to be unlike people in our in our grace relative to forgiveness with our families, with our church members, with our communities, where they look at you and they look at me like, man, that is, I am so glad that you, Christian, are here in my community because you are unlike anyone else I see. You are so ridiculously forgiving. You are so sympathetic. You have the softest heart that I've ever seen. You are so hospitable. Why do you have people over to your house all the time? 
Like to be unlike in these ways, not unlike in, oh, they dress differently, they have certain standards here, certain standards there, I can't be like them. But unlike in the areas of, wow, that's somebody representing something deep that I really want to understand more. To be like, to be unlike. And then thirdly, and this is where I've been trying to grow myself in the last um, year or so especially, is this idea of engaged. I want you to consider these words, to be like our world to be unlike the world, but also to be engaged. And here's what I mean by engaged. That the gospel um, demands a humility. It demands that you and I look at our neighbors and realize there are people, even of different faiths, take Father's Day, for example. Maybe some of you know a Uh, You have friends who are of different faith persuasions. It's entirely possible that your Muslim neighbor is a better father than you are, than I am. And it may be the entirely correct thing to do for me to say to my Muslim neighbor, you know what, can you help me understand how you're such a great dad? Like, I really actually want to learn from you. Because the gospel demands this humility. just demands that. You know, some of you are working in the schools or work with... um, Parents who sometimes get animated around their children. I've seen, and you've probably seen too, um, when a child gets in trouble and the administration has to kind of nail down on them, sometimes parents can get animated, right? Sometimes parents can, can yell and get, get angry. But what if, what if that mom or what if that dad is actually a better mom or better dad than I'd ever be? Because their passion, their heart for their kids expressed in the wrong way. But what if I have something to learn about the time and the love and energy they give to their kid? rather than standing here judging them for yelling and being an outburst in the principal's office, for example. See, the gospel demands I get under that. One of the things I've been trying to do just personally in the last several months with the, the, uh, the leaders in our community I have a chance to engage with um, is asking them some really intentional questions around leadership, around their personal lives, uh, because opportunities present itself for that. So I remember sitting with one of our local leaders and saying um, to them, I said, you know, um, Talk to me about vulnerability and leadership. Help me understand in your role, how do you demonstrate proper vulnerability? Because people look to you for a variety of things. And we talked about that for a little while. And one of the things he said, he said this, you know what I find hard with Christians? Is that they seem to have clean, easy answers for everything. They seem to be unable to engage the deeper emotions. They just seem like they have, he said, I went to a funeral service one time and it just seemed like they never even engaged the pain and the struggle of what was, they just glossed it over. And then he shared the gospel with me. He's like, and they glossed it over with, God loves you, he sent Jesus to die for you on the cross, he's dead and buried, and he's here. If you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. And I'm sitting there eating my lunch, like, yep, that's the gospel. He probably doesn't need me to share that with him. You know, like, like he knows what he's saying, and all I did was ask him, talk to me about vulnerability and leadership. How do you do that? Because I want to learn from you. And these are the conversations that lead to places. You know, I was talking with someone else here about um, impact in leadership. Ask them, you know, how do you know if you're really making the kind of impact that you want to be making? That at the end of the day, at the end of your season, that you're here in this role that you're in, how are you going to know that you have made the kind of impact you, you have? And so we started talking about that. And then, you know, he, he turned it back to me. He said, well, what about you? You know, what do you, what do you think? But I legitimately want to engage. I just want to know. And so then I'm like, well, let me tell you. He said, I, I said, here's one of the things that drives me. I said, I, I go back to one of the things Jesus said. He told a parable about three uh, 
you know, three folks that were given talents, and there was a task manager, there was a, uh, an owner who went away and said, I'm going to give you one, I'm going to give you five, I'm going to give you ten. And so I just unpacked that a little bit, and I said, Here, here's for me, like, I want to know that at the end of my season, wherever I am, that, that I have been able to invest with significance and not been afraid, like that one person was afraid, to do what needed to be done. And so part of it is I don't want to live in fear, but I also recognize that that means I must step into risk. And so I want to be able to invest and understand. So we just kind of unpack some of my faith that I have and how it drives me. And so this idea of being engaged is also what I mean when I think about walking with people through these many decisions. Like what I want for you individually, I don't want you to have to feel like you're selling cut code knives. I don't want you to have to feel like I have to go and sell something. But I do want you to think about who is around me. Who is around me that I, I can be like, and I, not that you need to change who you are, but who, who connects with me because they know me and I relate to them. Like, who is like me? Who thinks like me? Who's around me? Who, who's like a, but in those like relationships, am I, do I have anything that's unlike that? Do I have anything that they would want? Do I have anything that's, that's aspirational? Do I have anything unlike what they have? Do I have any hope to offer? Do I have any forgiveness or redemption that courses through my veins? Do I have any different way of processing grief that people would want to see? Like, do I have anything in me that is different than what they're getting? Like that unlike piece, and then the engaged of saying, okay, the people who are around you that you're like, you're unlike, and now engaged with, these are the, the entry points of help me understand. Can you walk me through? What does it mean to be a mom of multiple kids. Help me understand, how in the world do you handle discipline? Can you walk me through your financial planning process? Can you help me think about your business plan? How do you run your business? How do you treat employees like this and that? And you're dealing with life-on-life issues, but you're stepping into opportunities for engagement. And you're engaging not just because you want to blend in, but you're engaging as a believer in Jesus Christ. Taking the opportunities that conversations allow and making those opportunities sometimes to say, this space of mothering, of fathering, of growing up as a teen. These are the places where I'm going to inject my faith little by little to help people see along the way in the course of the little mini decisions that they make to trust you, to trust the Bible, maybe, maybe to trust the church, maybe, maybe to think about Jesus in a new way, maybe, would actually come because they know you, they see you, that all of a sudden, oh, they're, they're like me. They're like me, but there's something different about them. They're kind of unlike me. They're engaged with me. They care about me. They seem to be able to talk about matters of faith without making it weird. They're not trying to make me a Democrat or make me a Republican or make me buy their Cutco knives, but they're engaged with me. And we can genuinely and naturally have the conversations about what drives them without it getting all weird. Part of the problem I have, and I want you to consider this too, is when I look at my calendar, I've had to ask over the years, and I think you have probably asked over your years too, do I even have time on my calendar to be engaged with people who are unlike me in any way? If you have a bigger family in this county, this is even harder for you. Do you have time, do you make the time in your calendar to be engaged with people who are outside of faith at all? What does that look like for you? So I'd encourage you to look back on your calendar, even to look forward to say, okay, of all the meetings I have this week, of all the people I'm going to connect with this week, what does my calendar tell me? Am I actually enclosed within a Christian bubble? Or do I have opportunities? I'm making opportunities to connect with people who are like, maybe unlike, whom I can engage with. I want you to think about for a minute, if you can imagine, 
what a community might look like. With the good news that God, through his son Jesus, has an interest both in our eternal future and in our present day experience. That God has an interest that your kids get an education, that they can read, that your business grow, provides great opportunities for people in our communities to, to work, to find value, purpose, and meaning, that our transportation systems provide equal opportunities, that our economic systems provide the same things, that there's good news of God that is seen in our systems and in our people. And imagine the church kind of being the center of that, being the driver, the catalyst for reformation, for change, for growth in all areas of injustice. That's part of the good news that we've talked about. But I want you to imagine, too, what if you individually, what if you were like, and I was like, the people in Acts, who wherever they went, preached the word, evangelized, but didn't do it by selling knives door to door, although sometimes we do need to maybe do that, but really engaged, who were like people enough, they were like, you know what? They're kind of fun to be with. I'd have them over for a cookout. And I'd go wherever with them. They're like me. But there's something cool and different about them. Something unlike. And they're not afraid to stand out for that. Man, they really seem to care. Can you imagine what a community would look like? Can you imagine what your calendar would look like? And can you imagine what purpose and life it could breathe back into your own heart, your faith, that your faith isn't just come and see and hope, but that your faith, your faith, is a daily exercise of who am I with, who can I engage with, and how can I grow in my faith with them. That is the good news of God through Jesus Christ, that he cares both about the future, the present, and uses the church and uses you to carry that forward. And that is the hope of this church, that we can be a transforming presence in the town square, pursuing the social, spiritual, and cultural good, no matter where we go and what we do. That is the good news of Jesus. All right. Thank you for being on this journey with me. Next week, I look forward to inviting or having Adam Nagel, the new executive director of the Factory Ministries here. But this is the good news, and I hope, I hope that you can process, can think through what will it look like for you to be like, unlike, and engaged no matter where you go. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together this morning to settle in on these ideas, practical ideas of how to press out our faith in the relationships that we have with the people we go to school with, the people we work with, the communities that we live in. I pray that you give us the courage to just step back for a minute from our routines, to, to find the space to engage this Think about our business for a minute. Think about our friends for a minute. Think about our family for a minute. Think about my daily habits for a minute. Think about the people who I eat lunch with, the people I go to coffee with, the people that I engage on social media. Just, just pause for a moment. Just get out of the, 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 the kind of rat race thing for a little bit and just step back for a minute and, and ask, God, am I, am I doing this kind of thing? Where can I grow? What do I need to stop? What do I need to start? But do I need to increase or decrease? To be like, unlike, and engaged with the folks that I see and the opportunities that you have given me. So I pray that you give us courage.
to do what we know we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray.